we should obey it. It says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Actually, I'm glad it's only one verse because we can observe it and interpret it quickly and then we can spend the rest of the time applying it to our lives. I think to get some perspective, though, it would be good to go all the way back to verse 1 and read down to verse 7 to see this list that God has put together. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. That's commandment number one. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. That's commandment number two. And now for today you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Getting it in perspective, we see that the first commandment tells us that we should worship the true God. We should have no other gods besides Him. The second commandment tells us that we should worship the true God in a right manner by not having graven images, reminders of God, because God is transcendent and no image can capture Him. We don't need visual aids. We just worship Him in spirit and in truth. The third commandment tells us that even his very name should be honored and should be respected. And we shouldn't take it in vain. You know, if you ask most Christian people about the third commandment, they will probably say that it refers to profanity. Thou shalt not cuss, in other words. And that's why I think think it's always helpful to bring in other translations of the same text, taken out of the Hebrew, translated into various... Uh, other translations to get the real rich, colorful meaning. Let me read to you the Knox translation, a translation that was taken from the Latin Vulgate and translated into English. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God lightly upon your lips. The Amplified. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God lightly, frivolously, in false affirmations or profanely. The Jerusalem Bible puts it this way, You shall not utter the name of Yahweh your God to misuse it. And finally, the Lamza translation, taken from ancient manuscripts, You shall not take a false oath. You shall not take a false oath. Now, the commandment takes into consideration all of those meanings, I believe, and we want to take them and apply them to our lives. The Hebrew word for in vain is one word. It's the word shav. The word shav. And it actually means, literally, unreality. If you wanted a strict uh, definition from the dictionary of this, it would be to empty of content. That is to take the name of God and empty it of content or to make it irrelevant. So the name of God, whether it's spoken or sung in a song, should never be emptied of its full meaning of its full content, done in a frivolous and an insincere way. Now you might be asking yourself the question, 
Why is this on God's top ten list of eternal do's and don'ts? Of all of the things that God would want to say, thou shalt not do, why is His name taken in vain such an important thing? Well, there's an underlying idea in this commandment. And that is that there is something here that is sacred and to misuse it is to profane it. The name of God is so sacred. The words that we speak that include the name of God is so sacred. The promises that we make are so sacred, especially when we invoke the name of God, that to misuse our speech is to break the commandment. And really that's the underlying underpinning of this verse, that speech is sacred. It's never to be done thoughtlessly, frivolously, but it's to be done with thought. doesn't mean you can't goof off because non, I would be the greatest sinner for that one. But the idea that especially when you bring in the name of God, that there is something sacred there that you should not profane. And so this morning, we want to look at this commandment in the light of three things that are sacred. Names, words, and promises. But the entire commandment has to do with speech, especially careless speech. And I think we should be uh, quick to remember, as someone once put it, a closed mouth gathers no feet. You ever put your foot in your mouth? Ever said words that you wish you could pull back and stuff them down your gullet after saying them, but you can't? You've already done the damage. There's some people that do this a lot. They put their foot in their mouth a lot. They need toothpicks from Dr. Scholl things get so bad. Careless speech that can hurt. The Bible acknowledges that it is difficult to tame the tongue. Have you found that, found that to be true? Uh, James says, no man can tame the tongue. It sets things on fire, and yet the Bible says it must be controlled. And of course, it's controlled by the Spirit of the living God and only by God's grace. But listen to what Solomon said in Proverbs 12. There is one who speaks like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. There are people who every time they talk, it's just, why did they say that? It hurts so much, they just destroyed me. In the next proverb, chapter 13, verse 3, Solomon says, He who guards his mouth preserves his life. And so, with that as a backdrop and an introduction, we want to look at three things that are sacred that this commandment speaks to. Names, words, and promises. First of all, names. And really, that's how it is phrased in verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. In the Bible, a name of a person is much more than a label or a means of identification. The ancients believed that there was a vital connection between a person's name and a person's nature. And so when the Hebrews would pick names for their kids, they didn't have a a book of baby names with the latest trendy cool names of the 1990s to name your children. No, no. They would name their children either after a circumstance that happened at birth or a sincere hope and prayer that the child would become what his name would imply. Um, Good biblical names like Skip. No, you see, 
Uh, it's a hard one, isn't it? You, know, you have to ask my parents what they had in mind on that one. Uh, skip it. Let's go on. Some of the names in the Bible are very revealing. Isaac means laughter. And the laughter that it was speaking about is the laughter that Sarah had being 90 years old having a baby. Just the sheer joy of having a child. I mean, you'd laugh too if you were 90 years old and had a baby, I'm sure. Then there was Esau. Esau's name means hairy. And when he came out of the womb, he had more hair than Jacob had. And they looked at him and said, look at him, he's hairy. And they thought, good name, let's call him Harry. When his brother came out, his arm was grabbing the heel. And so they called him heel catcher. That's what Jacob means. One who grabs the heel, or it came to mean supplanter. Um, it was common to also attach the word El or Yah onto the names of children because that was a name of God and it was the idea of bringing God into that child's life. And so we have the name Elisha, which means my God is salvation. We have Dan, which means judge. Danielle means God is my judge. We go on and we find names like Jehoiakim, which means the Lord establishes. Often these children lived up to their names. Sometimes they did not live up to their names. And a powerful example is Judas, who betrayed Jesus. His name means, I praise my God. And of course, Judas betrayed Jesus Christ. There are some names, as I read the Bible, I really feel sorry for the kids named that. They got a raw deal. Uh, Caleb means dog. You know, maybe they wanted a pet and they had a child instead and they called him Caleb. I don't know. The name Ichabod was given to a child. Uh, it means the glory of God has left. How would you like to go to school with that name? What's your name? My name is the glory of God has left. Oh, you know that the kids are going to poke fun at that guy. Sometimes names were changed even before an event or a, a new direction that God was to give. For instance, Abram, his name was changed to Abraham. The name Abram means exalted father. Yet he had no children when he was called that. And so as the people would pass through the land, hey, what's your name? My name's Abram. Oh, exalted father. Well, how many kids do you have? I don't have any yet. But God promised that I'd have one. Really? Well, how old are you? Well, I'm almost 100 now. Huh. I'll let him go, you know. He gets old. It just, it's better to leave it. To make matters worse, God changed his name to Abraham, father of a multitude. So as the caravan would come back through the town, hey, what's your name? Well, I'm yeah, Abraham. No, it's Abraham now, father of a multitude. Whoa, God must have really blessed. Well, I haven't had those children yet. But the name was changed to speak of a new direction of blessing that God was to give. In the New Testament, we read of Simon, whose name was changed to Peter. It's a better name for him. Simon meant hearing. He didn't do much of that. He did a lot of talking, not much listening. Jesus changed his name to a stone, Peter. 
We have the name Saul, Saul of Tarsus. He named his name or his parents after the ancient Saul. His name became Paul. And I think Paul named himself that. It means little or short of stature. Probably a name of humility after he had met Christ. Most important, and speaking to our text, is the name of God. The name of God is very meaningful. Even as people's names back then meant something, the name of God, I should say the names of God, meant something. When you talk about taking the name of God in vain, the difficult thing is which name? Over 300 names are given to God in the Scripture, in the Old Testament. 300 separate names that speak of God, each one of them giving us a different aspect of His character and speaking of His authority. Remember when uh, David fought Goliath? And Goliath is out there saying, I'm going to make you into bird's meat, bird food. And uh, David said, listen, pal, you come to me with swords and spears, but I come to you in the name of the God of Israel whose armies you have defied. He saw that there was power and authority in the name of God. You should also know that the Jews believed that the name God, either it was Yahweh or Jehovah principally, we don't know how it was pronounced because in the Bible, in the original text, we only have four letters. They took out all of the vowels and left only the consonants because to the Jews, to even speak the name of God was a crime. Human lips were not worthy to bear his name. And so often a Jewish person would simply say, the name. Or in Hebrew, Hashem. Instead of saying God, they would say, Hashem has said, the name has said. Because his name was so sacred. Yet as we read the Bible, there are several names that speak of God's character. Elohim is a word that is used over 2,000 times in the Old Testament. And it means the strong and faithful one. It speaks of God's power, especially when He creates. We have the name Yahweh or Jehovah, depending on how you want to pronounce it. We have the name Lord, Adonai, which is used several times. It means master. It speaks of the servant-master relationship that God has with His people. He's the master over them. He's to master and rule and govern their lives. They're to submit unto Him. Adonai, my master. We have the name El Elyon, the Most High God. El Shaddai, God the Almighty. There's Jehovah Jireh. Actually, it would probably be pronounced Yahweh Yireh, which means God is the provider. We have Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is my peace. Yahweh Tzidkanu, God is righteousness. And every name reveals some of the character of God. Would you turn with me over to Exodus chapter 34 for just a moment? Because we see that basically a name represents all that the person is. Exodus chapter 34. Verse 5. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, here's his name, the Lord. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You see, we have the characteristics of God that are spoken about in the name of God, which means to take God's name in vain is to use a name that does not, in such a fashion that does not represent the character of God. It's to empty His name of all of its reverence, all of its content, His reputation, His characteristics and intention. One day, a couple disciples came up to Jesus. He said, Lord, teach us to pray, just like John taught his disciples to pray. Jesus said, all right. When you pray, pray in this manner. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That was first on the list. Before you get into anything like special personal prayer requests or asking for the forgiveness of sin, you first honor the name of God. And your first concern in your prayer life, in your life for that matter, is that the name of God in heaven is accurately portrayed upon the earth through my life and through the answers to my prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So names, number one, are sacred. Secondly, words are also sacred. Words mean something. They should not just be tossed out lightly. They should be thought through, especially if God's name is in them. Jesus said these words, I say to you that for every idle word that men speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. There was a person who wrote a little poem that said, You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the things that you do and by the words that you say. People hear what you say, and they see what you do. And so what is the gospel according to you? Our words mean something. They reflect what we're into. They're sacred. All right. How do people take the name of God in vain in regards to their words, which are sacred? Well, number one, by profanity. By profanity. Using the name of God in coarse speech taking the holy name God or Jesus or whatever and putting it with other words where those words should never meet the name of God. There's lots of people who'd like to use profanity. They display their ignorance by the amount of four-letter words they know. And a lot of people like to use devil and hell and damn. And They're probably speaking of their future destination more than anything else. They don't know Christ. It is especially offensive to God when His name is trashed in such a fashion. Uh, There is a common vulgarity where a person will ask God to consign another person to hell. God, and then they'll say, damn, and then they'll put that person's name in, or they'll say it to a person. A horrible misrepresentation of the character of God. That doesn't represent God's character. Jesus said, God sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He doesn't want to condemn. He wants to save. Peter said, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. And so for Christians especially, we ought to use the language of the courts of heaven, not the language of the world. Secondly, you can take God's name in vain in this regard by hypocrisy. Profanity and then hypocrisy. That means 
a profession without a practice, words without a walk. You can use God's name in praise, but if your life isn't lived according to His name and His nature, you've canceled it out by hypocrisy. Jesus said, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice iniquity. You see, they used the name of Jesus. They used it often, it would seem like. And yet their life did not back up their words. Now back to our text in uh, chapter 20 of Exodus. Notice that it says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord, verse 7, will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You know what guiltless means? In Hebrew it means clean. And it would be more accurately translated, For the Lord will not hold him to be clean who takes his name in vain. The Rolls-Royce company would frown upon you taking a Rolls-Royce emblem and putting it on your Ford pickup truck. You might like the insignia. It's a, it's a classic-looking insignia. But if you were to put that on your Ford pickup, especially if it was beat up a little bit, they'd look down on it. Because to them, maybe not to you, but to them, the manufacturer, you are misrepresenting the quality, the craftsmanship, and the reputation of the Rolls-Royce company. Though it might be novel, though your friends might say, hey, that's a good joke. It wouldn't be a joke to Rolls-Royce. You could get sued because of that. Because the symbol, the insignia, the title, should reflect the craftsmanship upon which that insignia sits. And if it's a Ford pickup and not a Rolls-Royce, you could get in trouble. All right. We take the name Christian. God has stamped His insignia upon us. If the life doesn't adequately reflect what that insignia is to reflect, if we're living hypocritical lives, though we praise the Lord, though we would use His name frequently in our speech, by hypocrisy we can cancel it out, and the reputation of God is lowered in the eyes of the world. It's lowered. So when you have a guy down in Texas who claims to be a prophet and uh, to interpret seven seals of the book of Revelation, and the result is what we saw this last week in Waco, Texas, don't you think that in the eyes of the unknowing, the eyes of the world, they just label that as all Christians? They're all fanatics. Look at what it gets you into. A lot of people will see that, especially Christians who speak about end-time events and the soon return of Jesus Christ. Oh, they're one of those groups. And the reputation of God is lower. It is far better to never ever mention the name of God than to mention it and have it canceled out by your life. G. Campbell Morgan said, Profanity in the church is worse than profanity in the street. The blasphemy of the sanctuary is a far more insidious form of evil than the blasphemy in the slum. See, if truth is not behind the words of worship, don't worship. Elijah said that. The children of Israel were worshiping God, they said. They called upon the name of Yahweh, but they were worshiping the gods of Baal and Asherah. So Elijah comes to him one day and he says, Look, how long will you waver between two opinions? If God is God, worship Him. If Baal is Baal, follow Him. But take your choice and then live the life. 
Before we move on, a word about Christian vocabulary. God talk. Uh, don't use it unless you mean it. I don't know if you're aware of this. Maybe you've forgotten. But when I first became a Christian, I noticed there was almost a subculture vocabulary among Christians. There was these, these words that I didn't quite have decoded yet. Uh, besides the praise God, the hallelujah, the bless the Lord, which I came to say, but I wanted to say it, if it only if I meant it. There were things like, well, do you bear witness, brother? And at that time, I couldn't figure that out. What do you mean, bear witness? What is it I'm supposed to see or to witness to be able to bear? But there's all sorts of Christian code words. Be careful that you don't say these things unless you mean them from the heart because it can be meaningless chatter to fill your sentences with hallelujah, bless God, praise the Lord if it's just nothing that you mean in your heart. Don't take the name of God in vain. Let it be accurate. Um, Paul the Apostle said, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but don't have love, I'm a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. People can become like Christmas trees, decorated on the outside, but dead on the inside. Using the right words, going to the right places, but there's no vital life behind those words. Okay, thirdly, promises are sacred. Names are sacred, words are sacred promises are sacred. And this is where I really want to apply this to our hearts. William Barclay, among many other commentators, believe that verse 7, the third commandment, is speaking principally of an oath, a pledge, a promise that a person would make in the name of the Lord and then break that oath. In other words, a person would say, by Almighty God, I promise, and they would say that, but they wouldn't mean those words they would lightly break their oaths and they would take the name of God in vain. Barclay points out that oaths, pledges, were very common in the ancient Middle East. To make a transaction. Today, if you wanted to take out a loan or you wanted to buy something, they would say, well, great, I'm glad you're interested in this home or this car, sir. Uh, We have to do a credit check. Make sure that you can pay off this note. We want to make sure that there's substance behind the words. And if your credit check comes out all right, chances are you may get the loan. In ancient Israel, they didn't have credit checks. They didn't have credit. Well, what's your job been? Well, I've been a shepherd for 40 years out in the desert. And so the way they would overcome this is by taking an oath. And the formula was something like this. As the Lord lives, may God do such and such to me if I don't do such and such for you. If I don't finish this transaction, I'm calling God to judge me. As the Lord lives was their oath. Much like a person will go in the courtroom today, place his hand on the Bible, I swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. You'd take an oath. And you'd call God into account to take the oath. After a while, the oaths that people were taking in the name of God became very empty. They started breaking them. And they didn't care. They would say, oh yes, as the Lord lives, but they were emptying the value. They were pouring out the reputation of the name of God because they were breaking promises. And the Bible looks down seriously upon this. A couple of places are notable. Leviticus 19, we read, Do not swear falsely by my name or profane the name of your God, for I am the Lord. In the book of Jeremiah, he condemns people who say, as surely as the Lord lives. And still they are swearing falsely, he says. 
In the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi classes those who break oaths with sorcerers, adulterers, and those who oppress the poor. All right. Would you turn with me now to the New Testament book of Matthew for just a moment? Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. And look at a couple of verses where Jesus no doubt is referring to this practice of misusing the second commandment. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 33. Jesus says, Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, Do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it's his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Now, you might be interested to know that some of the ancient Quakers, when they read this, saw this as a prohibition for taking any kind of an oath. They wouldn't even go to a courtroom and promise in an oath to tell the truth. But that's not what Jesus is referring to. He himself places himself under an oath later on. When he's standing before Pontius Pilate, Paul the Apostle in Galatians 1 puts himself under an oath. Much the same formula. But verse 36 goes on. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. Of course, this was before the days of Lady Clairol. But let your yes be yes, verse 37, and your no be no. For whatever is more than these comes from the evil one. Here's the background. Religious leaders in those days told white lies. They made oaths that they said were non-binding oaths. They thought that it was okay to just tell a little fib. And Jesus is busting them. I heard of four kids who had spring fever. They get that about this time of the year, don't they? Unless you're in year-round school, then they don't know what kind of fever to get. They just get certain kind of spring break fever. But in one school, four kids ditched class that morning, came back before lunch, teacher saw them and said, well, you missed the test, but you can make it up. Why were you late? Oh, we're coming to school, teacher, we had a flat tire. Oh, really? Great. Well, sit down, four separate desks, get a pencil, piece of paper. First question, which tire was flat? And in that answer, they were completely busted. Now, Jesus beautifully does that to these religious hypocrites who were taking oaths that they were breaking very lightly. You see, this is what they would say. If I take an oath and I say, by Almighty God, I promise to do this, then I'm bound to keep it because I've invoked the name of God. But if I say, I swear by Jerusalem, I swear by heaven or by earth or by my head, Then, although that is an oath, because the name of God isn't in it, I can break it. And Jesus is saying, no, you can't. You can't keep God out of any promise that you make, whether you use the name formally or not. A promise is a promise. And God is a part of the transaction that you make. So if you say, I swear by Jerusalem, well, that's God's holy city anyway. I swear by heaven, that's where God's throne is. I swear by the earth, that's his footstool. I swore by my head. Well, he made that too. God is a part of every transaction. The idea here is that be a person of integrity. When you make a promise, follow through with it. When you make an oath, keep the oath. Now, I want to close this morning by applying this application to our lives. 
We need to be careful of the promises we make in a few different areas. Number one, ordinary everyday promises. Ordinary promises. In a recent book, two secular authors, Peter Kim and James Patterson, said, quote, Americans lie. They lie more than we ever thought possible before we did this study. In fact, 91% of Americans lie regularly. How much of life is laden with broken promises? Things like, I'll be there, I'll do that. Yeah, don't worry, I'll take care of it. We all make mistakes, but the idea is that be careful what you promise. Because words and promises are sacred. Um, remember Mary Poppins, the movie? And uh, in one of the scenes, the two children, the two Banks children, Jane and Michael Banks, spent their first amazing day with Mary Poppins. They saw all of the things she could do. And as she was tucking them into bed that night, uh, the, the little girl said, Mary Poppins, please never leave us. Tell us you'll always be here for us. And the little boy says, we promise we'll always be good if you'll always be with us. And Mary Poppins looked and said, that's a pie crust promise, easily made and easily broken. Don't be in the habit of making pie crust promises. Oh, it's going to make a person feel good if I say this. No, don't say it. Follow through with it. Otherwise, don't say it. Secondly, there's a work ethic that I'd like to apply this to because the Bible sees work as somewhat sacred. When you get a job, you enter into a contract. You are telling the employer, I will give you so much of my life, so much of my work and my energy for so much of your money. You give me so much of this money and I will give you so much of my work. But tragically, the work ethic in this country has gone to an all-time low, even among many believers. In a uh, Detroit business office, uh, employees put up this little notice. It said, employers did. The management regrets that it has come to their attention that workers dying on the job are failing to fall down. This practice must stop immediately. As it becomes impossible to distinguish between death and the natural movement of the staff. Any employee found dead in an upright position will immediately be dropped from the payroll. You know, I've heard employers tell me I never want to hire another Christian. I say, why? I've heard that very often. That's puzzled me. That's bothered me. Because often Christians, especially when they work for other Christians, want to take advantage of that situation. And the employer says, hey, get off your duff and work. Oh, come on, brother. Bless the Lord, brother. I'm a Christian. Hey, Get to work. Because you're a Christian, you ought to work harder. You ought to do a better job. And Christians ought to prove to their employers that they're worth more. Because God is their employer. Paul the Apostle says we ought to work as pleasing the Lord, not with eye service, being men-pleasers, but doing it completely as unto the Lord. And I've worked with many Christians who use a lot of flaky excuses. I don't feel led right now to do that. Really? I feel led to fire you then right now. How's that? I can talk the same talk as well. Then there are relationship promises. Vows that we make to husbands and wives at the altar of marriage that seem to be so lightly broken. And again, I think this is bothersome to not only me, but you as well. 
how people week after week will stand as Christians and say, I take you as my lawfully wedded wife to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. In other words, no matter what, till death do us part. And they use the name of God, and yet the Christian divorce rate mirrors the divorce rate of the world. How could this be? Promises are not seen as sacred. What about pledges to children? Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is His reward. We dedicate our children and we pray not only for the children but for the parents, that they would raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And parents, you made a promise to that child who comes into the world. I'm going to give you godly principles. I'm going to give you a fiber, a framework that will give you stability in your life. You're going to make your own choices later on, but especially in these early years, I want to provide a good example and a good framework. Christian parents, you cannot shuffle them off to the Sunday school department and say, that's their responsibility. I send them to Christian school. I pay good money. That church ought to do it or that school ought to do it. No, you'll never be able to point the finger and say, they failed. you got three fingers pointing back at you. It's a parent's responsibility. It's a holy vow and a promise that we make before the Lord to those children. And then finally, there is the promise to God Himself. That's the highest and the holiest. As a Christian, we take Jesus to be our Lord, our Savior, and our King. What would it take for you to leave that promise? I know some people who say, well, you know, I went into this Christian thing thinking it'd be a lot better than it is. It's not what I expected. I wish God would give me what I deserve. Hey, better think about that one again. Better really think about that one again. You're glad God doesn't give you what you do deserve. God's merciful and gracious. But God's made a commitment to you, and you've made a commitment to Him to follow Him. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That takes us full circle to the New Testament. All of the promises that God have made are found in their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says concerning Jesus Christ... God has given him a name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul said, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth Jesus is the Lord, you shall be saved. If you do believe in your heart and you do confess with your mouth, it will be lived by your life and His name will never be used in vain. Some of you are still profaning the very name of the one who loves you. The one who wants to embrace you and give you everlasting life. A final encouragement. Those of us who are believers, we take His name. It's stamped upon us. There's a reputation at stake. Are we lowering God's reputation or raising the level of His reputation before people? And then finally, to you who are unbelievers, God wants to stamp His name in you to change you, to have you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, and follow with your life. And today might be the day for that. The best, highest transaction you could ever make. Let's pray. Father, you've given us so many relationships, friends, uh, employers, employees, spouses, children, relatives, and mostly important, you. Lord, I pray that we would think about the words that we use to all of those involved. We recognize we are so far from perfection. 
We thank you for your grace and your mercy and your compassion upon us as humans. And yet, Father, I pray that the tongue would be tamed by your spirit. That we would see speech as sacred. The name of God is sacred. Words is sacred. And promises especially, especially promises, is very sacred. And we pray, Lord, that as we follow through with commitments made by our mouths, that husbands, wives, and children would receive the benefit. And Father, as you're calling people to a relationship with Jesus Christ, the name above every name today, I pray that as people make that decision and that commitment, as you stamp your name upon them, as they bear the name Christian in this world, that more and more they would reflect the image of the one that they bear in Jesus' name. Amen.